When I think about economics, I think economics is life and life is economics. Every choice or environment or situation that we find ourselves, it has economic implications and the economic model can help us understand how people are behaving in those situations. When your work is so deeply ingrained in the way that the world works, that's pretty cool. I believe that at some foundational level, we would all like to have some impact on this world that we live in to demonstrate some value to our human tribe. And, you know, the interesting thing is that we don't even have to work at creating that desire, that somehow it's built into our DNA, that at some deep level, we want to do something in our life that has meaning. And many of us try to have some impact that is, well, just a bit bigger than others. Yeah, you know, Kurt, I remember as a kid, I dreamed about hosting free community concerts that would promote local musicians. I wrote out plans that were detailed and included, you know, all the artists and venue issues that had to be dealt with, uh, stage and technical logistics, crowd control. But I could never figure out how to fund them. And the idea really never got off the ground. So you wanted to contribute to the world, to bring music to the masses. Yes. You just couldn't find a way to scale that up, huh? Ah, uh, yeah. The scalability. At least the way that I was conceiving it, it wasn't scalable. So my idea was like to put lots of these localized sort of mini Woodstock festivals <laughs> to get more, you know, music into communities. Right? Of course, mini Woodstock festivals. Of course. of course you would. But unlike Woodstock, these events would be free to the people who wanted to attend, but it also paid musicians for their efforts. And like I said, I couldn't find a way to... I couldn't solve the funding problem, basically. Well, couldn't you just do like Woodstock and have them just jump over the fence and it's all well, free there? There you go. Somebody had to pay for all this stuff. That was <laughs> that was the problem, yes. Yeah. And, and how old were you when you had this idea, Tim? I was 10. Whoa. <laughs> yeah. My God. So, so you've been putting these big ideas or thinking about big ideas for a long time. That are still not scalable. <laughs> well, but okay. So let me, let me push back on that because in Minneapolis, at least the city where we live, right? There's a summer concert series that is yep. put on by the city. They have concerts and parks all around. I think they do that in other cities as well. So to a degree, is that kind of what you were looking to do? Yeah, very much. Actually, I'd say it's not a new idea. It's not just Minneapolis. It's cities all over the U.S. and all over the world. I think we could actually trace this back to like ancient Rome, <laughs> cities have been using, you know, tax dollars to support arts and entertainment. I just wasn't clued in on how to make it happen. I couldn't, I didn't, I wasn't able to put that together to make it scale. Ah, so, which is the interesting part. And it's the core of our conversation uh, in today's episode. In our human quest to be relevant to our tribe, some of us pursue ideas that can be scaled beyond the individual. And scaling ideas goes beyond just our personal life and even the lives of our immediate family. The idea of scaling is that we go from just one person into a larger community like cities and corporations, etc. So the question that we're tackling in this episode today is really the same question that I tackled as a 10-year-old kid. How do we solve the problem of scaling an idea. And with that, welcome to Behavioral Groups, the podcast that explores stories, science, and secrets from the world's brightest thought leaders for the curious at heart. I'm Kurt Nelson, 
And I'm Tim Houlihan. We like to investigate the aspects of behavioral science that will improve your well-being, your relationships, and your organization by helping you find your groove. From best-selling authors to researchers, we share insights from the sharpest minds in psychology, behavioral economics, and neuroscience. And this episode is no different. We talk with John List, who is a University of Chicago professor of economics. He is also the chief economist at Walmart. And, and Tim, he is the author of The Voltage Effect, How to Make Good Ideas Great and Great Ideas Scale. We yeah. talk with John about the concept of scalability and why it's hard to go from the Petri dish, as he puts it, to successful broad-scale community music programs. Tim, that's what we talk about. Oh, wait, we don't talk about music in particular. Well, we do, but that's a whole different side. Well, John is also active uh, with philanthropic efforts, and we'll talk about that later. He helped create schools that give kids and challenged communities a fighting chance in the world. And you'll hear more about that in our conversation. It's a fantastic conversation. It really is. We hope you enjoy it. Yes. And, and you'll also hear how John rigorously challenges ideas that sound really good and even test well in field experiments but may not hold well up when brought to scale. And it's a really important lesson, I think, for listeners. So as you're listening, take that into, into mind as you're going forward. I'll tell you what, I wish I could have used, I could have definitely used some help from John when I was 10 years old. Just saying that. <laughs> you know what? <laughs> we could use uh, help from John today. So, you know, that's where we are. Um, so the question, Tim, what ideas do you want to scale now? Mmm. Mmm. That that mm. <laughs> yes. Uh Groovers, we want you to give that some thought. And while you do, sit back with a high voltage cocktail and enjoy our conversation with John List. John List, welcome to Behavioral Grooves. Thanks so much for having me, Tim and Kurt. We are excited. And we always start with a speed round. So we're going to start that just like we always do. So, John, are you a coffee person or a tea person? Oh, both. Both. Oh, okay. Love it. Do you have, we've, we talked to many people, do you split like coffee in the morning and then move to tea in the afternoon? Or is it just a, a whatever comes to my fancy? It's a good question. I'd say I use a mixed strategy. Um, right now, I'm on the latte with one pump of brown sugar, and um, that's what I have in front of me right now. So that that's the, the taste. But earlier, I did have a tea. So my wife actually got me on tea. I, I was traditionally a coffee person, like a latte type person, but I'm not really a bushy like that, of course. Yeah. I'm more of a trucker, but... Um, my wife got me on the tea and I, I can't tell my parents I drink tea. They, they would probably disown me. <laughs> well, well, we won't, we won't uh, promote this to your parents and we'll Mom's let this, the word. this episode go. Yeah. No one will go. know. Okay. Uh, if you had a different career, would you prefer to be a professional golfer or a professional baseball coach? Gosh, I would say baseball coach. Oh, and, and I would say baseball coach just because every morning I wake up, my back is sore. And it's from all of the golf that mm. I have done. Wow, and so wow. physically, it would just take too much of a toll. The, the act of golfing is much more enjoyable for me. I like the strategy as much as I like the strategy of coaching baseball. But 
the physical wear. I don't think people fully understand the physical wear that a, that a PGA tour professional has to go through. And it's not just what Tiger's gone through. Yeah. Tiger's gone through a lot. And the torque in his swing really ruined his knee. But even like Steve Stricker, person who I used to play against back front, back in Wisconsin, I mean, when you look at his body, it's it's a real toll. I, I, I totally get it. If people are rolling their eyes, I totally get it. It's not a running back. It's not a defensive lineman I to- or a boxer. I totally get all that. But it still takes a physical toll. So yeah. I would say Major League Baseball manager. Yeah. Well, and then playing at that level, right? You you are it's it's a different thing than that you're every day going out uh, on a weekend and right. getting eighteen. So there you go. I oh, get that's that. Right. Yeah. Okay. What is more important to scale? Having good, unique ingredients or a fantastic chef? <laughs> <laughs> I would say you need ingredients that are replicable. That that's the main thing. So whether it's a human. The human can't be too unique because if the human is too unique, it will never scale because you can't find them and you can't teach it. But uh, the ingredients themselves, as long as you can get them at scale at a good price. Now, I'm talking economies of scale. If you want to speak economies, then (laughs) then we're in business. And that's I'm glad you brought that up. That's chapter three. Right, Kurt? Is it the chef or is it the ingredients? And I want you to choose whatever is less unique, or in other words, whatever is replicable, that's what I want your idea to have if you want to think about scaling. I love that. That's a, that's a great answer. Uh, so last speed round question, true or false, once you've had a really solid pilot program, you're pretty much ready to scale, right? False. <laughs> false. Come on, that's not it. You mean that 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 perfect scale with ten people doesn't oh. scale to a million? Well, we have thirty people that love the idea. What's wrong with that? Why not? Right, an N of one. Why not do it? It's a gut feeling. It felt good. Looks really good. I even replicated it once or twice. Ah, we're good to go. Not so fast, my friend, as Lee Corso would say on college game day. Let's let's sit back and let's think about this problem as a science, not as an art. You know, Tim, when I'm looking behind you, you have great art on the wall. I love that's where art should stay. Art should not, art should not come in to our decisions on what to scale mm. and how much money to spend on ideas that scale. The art should stay right there, Tim. It shouldn't come into our decision-making. And scaling has been too much about art and, hey, it looked good. Let's let's blow it up. That's, <laughs> that's art, Tim. I don't, I, don't want a, I don't want a piece of that. Yeah. I, I think that's that's fantastic. So uh, your new book, uh, The Voltage Effect, How to Make Good Ideas Great and Great Ideas Scale. I love the title because instantly, Voltage caught my attention. Like, why voltage? Tell us about what voltage is and what it means. Yeah, yeah. Now, voltage has come to mean many different things to many different people. So, let me tell you a little bit about what I uh, what I was thinking. So, let's first back up and say, when you write a book, there are sort of three really difficult parts about writing a book. The most difficult part is getting people to read it. So I want to thank both of you for giving me an an audience of people who might read it. Yes. The second most difficult thing is finding a title. And 
finding a title is difficult because you want the title not only to be descriptive, but you want it to be attractive. And attractive in the sense that a trucker will pick it up, a policymaker will pick it up, and a CEO will pick it up. So I think my title satisfies none of those criteria. <laughs> the engineers don't even like my title. I was going to say, you might have an electrician pick it up, right? Yeah, there you go. Exactly. So you can say, well, what in the world? So I, when I started to think about you know working in this area and you think about, well, we have a lot of ideas that work in the Petri dish. And when we scale them up to different situations or different people, the initial promise that we saw or observed in the Petri dish just doesn't materialize. Right. And I started to think about the voltage effect in two ways. One, it's the difference between what happens in the small versus what happens in the large. But it's also high voltage is when you scale something up and you have the ability to reach a lot of different people in a lot of different situations. So to me, the voltage effect has come to mean both of those. And the first one then you can ask, well, why did it look great in the Petri dish, but then not so great when you scaled it? And that's exactly what the first half of the book takes on. Yeah. yeah. So you give great examples in the book and we are encouraging everyone to read this who has any idea about who has any consideration or desire to take an idea and to make it bigger, to scale something. But you talk uh, at length about check the, the yeah. Chicago uh, school district. This is an amazing concept. And c can you, f yeah. you know, share a little bit of this story and the challenges yeah. that, that yeah. you faced through this? Yeah. Let me tee that up. Do you want the, the, Two minute version, the twenty two minute version, or the two hour and twenty two minute version. <laughs> well, give this is a, a, a constraint. This is a long form. We could go two hours and twenty minutes, but I think <laughs> for listening sake, maybe maybe something in between two uh, two minutes and two hours. Something. Okay, very good. I can I can do that. That's uh, I like that range. Okay, so check. Um, Chicago Heights community called me in two thousand and seven. Chicago Heights is a community that is about 20 miles straight south of Chicago. Chicago Heights is a community that the modern economy has left behind. This is a community that was at one point a very proud manufacturing town, a thriving economic center for a ton of great manufacturing. It's come on tough times. And when they called me in 2007, they said, John, we need help. And as a humane human, I said, sure, I'll be glad to help. What do you want me to do? And they said, come and visit and look around. And when you do that, you see a community that needs help around every corner. In every nook and cranny, you see that you might be able to help. Okay. The first problem is they don't have any resources. They're, they're starved. And that's like a lot of our communities around the world. So this isn't that unique. But what's unique is it's a very underserved community. 95% of people are on food stamps. Mm. And you have broken families and broken dreams. You have, say, 1,000 people entering the local high school every year. Only 480 of them end up graduating from high school. 
the other 520 kids drop out right around their 16th birthdays. So we started to look at stats like that. And we said, we want to pitch in, in terms of helping public education. Okay. So naturally, when you look at the high school data, you say, I want to start there. So that's where we started. And we did a high school program that it helped kids. It it helped move kids from dropping out to graduating. But what you quickly realize is when you're working with a 15-year-old who's reading at a first grade level or working with a 16-year-old who's doing math at a second grade level, you realize a lot of their potential is gone. It's very, very difficult to get out of them what we should have been helping them in terms of the opportunity from the beginning. Society and their families have let them down, okay? So of course we shouldn't stop helping adolescents and and high schoolers, but we decided to turn back the clock. And we decided to do early childhood at this point. And the early childhood idea was, let's start our own pre-K. And when I say pre-K, I mean three, four and five-year-olds. And we're going to basically build it from soup to nuts. And this isn't easy. I'm an economist now. (laughs) Right, right. You're you're not an education specialist. You're not trained in educating little kids. I'm not an education specialist. Well, I'd say I'm an education specialist at at teaching college kids. (laughs) There you go. I'm not an education specialist at teaching three, four, and five-year-olds. I don't know anything about curriculum. I don't know anything about hiring high school teachers and principals. So I'm the person who has boots on the ground yeah. and, and I'm designing the experiment, et cetera. So I designed this as a big experiment and build it from soup to nuts. It opens in 2010. Okay. Thousands of kids sign up. So I put some kids in the all day pre-K program. I develop a program that I call the parent Academy. And these are, Kids who I never teach directly, no. I teach their parents. Mm. And I teach their parents how to teach their children, not only during that time period, but also when they leave our program, because they're going to leave our program and go to kindergarten. Okay. So we opened in 2010, and 2014 rolls around. We have great results, just fantastic results. If a listener knows Chicago, I'm taking kids from the south side of Chicago in September. And by January, I'm moving them to the north side of Chicago. Mm. I'm talking about Northwestern style. Yeah, Yeah. That's what I'm doing in both COG scores and non-COG scores or executive function skills. So we're using all the standardized tests. It's not cooked, perfectly legit, good science. Okay. So we write those academic papers. Great. We help Chicago Heights. Great. But guess what? When you do a project like this or any project, you're not just about writing academic papers and helping the local community. You're about changing the world. And at this point, I start going around to policymakers and telling them about my great program. And at this time, I do have a lot of policymakers to talk to. Remember, I worked in the White House for two years. Yeah. So I knew all those times I had helped Barack Obama's team. So I knew both sides of the aisle. Bruce Rauner was the governor of Illinois. He had supported some of my previous work. So I had a lot of policymakers to talk to. The problem was none of them wanted to listen to me. And they didn't want to listen to me because they wanted to slap my face 
instead of listen to me. Tim, oh. Kurt, here's how they slap me in the face. Professor List. Wow, that program looks great, but don't expect it to happen at scale. I'm like, wait a second here. I've been doing <laughs> field experiments for 25 years. I started doing them in the early 90s. Don't tell me about field experiments. I'll teach you about field experiments. <laughs> and they said, look, we don't know why, but it just feels like your idea doesn't have the silver bullet. So at this point, I say, well, okay, what is the silver bullet? And can I go down to Walmart and buy a few dozen? <laughs> because yeah. I want to change the world and I want to figure out what the silver bullet is. So I push them. And they say to me, look, we're not really sure, but all the experts always come to us and say they have gold. And then when we scale it, it's not so great. It's silver at best, but most of the time it's fool's gold. We don't really know why. A lot of times we think it's because of fidelity, but it just never works out. So we'll take a pass. Now, at this point, and this is 2014, 2015 now, I took a pause in the way I think about how we're trying to change the world as social scientists. I stepped back and I said, what are we doing right now as a community? Here's what we're doing pretty much. We're doing an A-B test. And basically what that means is you get a bunch of people to sign up. You put half in A, the control, and half in B, the treatment. And we end up setting our treatment up so it has its best chance of working. Yeah. Kind of the yeah. idea, like, I just got $20 million to start a pre-K. It has to work, and it has to have big effects. Yeah. Otherwise, the donor will be upset. We won't get published in a big journal. The New York Times won't want to write us up. That, let's face it. That's how the incentives are set up. So I started to do research in this area about how we do our work. Are there voltage drops? You know, are, are there cases where the policymaker was correct? So I began doing academic papers on, first of all, is it true what the policymaker was saying about a voltage drop? And is it true that it's a silver bullet problem? So I write now probably two dozen academic papers, a bunch of theory, a bunch of data, and it's all wrapped up in a bunch of economies, a bunch of math jargon, a bunch of slang that nobody will understand, and maybe four people will read each paper. Yeah. So I said, look, I have to take stock, and I want to write a popular book because what we've discovered here is important enough to try to get it out to the masses. So that let me stop there, and then that's a long story, but hopefully you can use some of it. I love it. I Actually, I think that that's a great recap of how you got started and some of the challenges that you faced because the central – I think that – Many entrepreneurs, you know, face problems in sort of blind spots, not being aware of of what's happening in, in other areas that that they feel like they're trying to control and they and all they can see is this end of one that everything is working great for them. How do you coach people? You know, what the book is intended to say, wait a minute, be aware of these things. What are what are some of the common biases or or blind spots that people yeah, have absolutely. That, that they just absolutely. fall into so naturally it's like wait a minute stop here absolutely absolutely so I, I think it's let, let's just start with chapter one um and chapter one is about false positives 
Mm. And I want you to think about false positives as I just took a COVID test. And there will be some cases where it says that I'm COVID positive, but it's just not true. The, the test is lying. So I want you to think about this now scientifically, that when we run experiments or when we go to the world and, and use our experimental approach of A-B testing, in the best case scenario, the very best case scenario, you will have a false positive 5% of the time. That's the best case scenario. Yeah. Usually the way that we do research, it's probably like 40 or 50% of the time that we have false positives. Now, think about an entrepreneur or a government policymaker. They have, they have data. And, and let's say that the data are in concert with what they truly believed is the truth. So a lot of us as human beings have confirmation bias. Mm. And what that means is the entrepreneur or the policymaker has a gut feeling that it's going to work. And then when data come back that say it worked, voila, it's, it's <laughs> time to scale it. Of course I was right and the data are right. When the data come back that refute or are at odds with what you think should happen, you're like, well, wait a second, the experiment was wrong, or they made a mistake, or these, the sample size is too small. So we end up getting in this kind of mental model of confirmation bias, throwing a little bandwagon effect where people yep. are jumping on the bandwagon. All of a sudden, you have one study that is gold, and you run with it. And when you look at the data, the very first, what I would call a necessary condition, is make sure your idea has voltage. In the vast number of cases, we tend to run really fast, even though the policymakers didn't, of course, with my check example. Yeah. In, in many cases, that's kind of the irony here is why don't you run with my idea? Um, <laughs> but, but many mistakes are made that people run way too quickly and they run with not enough evidence and they're really running with false positives. So I have a lot of papers that lay out the math of all of this. But really, the example that I commonly use and I use in the book is Nancy Reagan. Mm -hmm. and, and Nancy Reagan was a, a well-intentioned person. You, you might not have appreciated what she was trying to do. So back in the mid-80s, what she was trying to do is trying to get teens to stop using drugs. So she did the just say no, yep. the, the D.A.R.E. campaign. Fan, fantastic slogan. Yeah. Fantastic it, slogan, right? The social inoculation it. program of the 80s. Yes. yes. And, and it was catchy and it made sense. And she looked at data from Honolulu. There was a really cool experiment that was done with high schoolers in Honolulu and it had 1,777 kids. So it was a, it was a well powered test and it showed that there was voltage. The problem was. That was a false positive. The data were lying. They did not replicate it or try it in L.A. or try it in Denver or try it in Minneapolis before they rolled it out. They rolled it out right away. They spent millions and millions of dollars, a lot of woman and manpower, and it was a flat out 
false positive. Yeah, it, it also kind of speaks to this representativeness that I, I love that you address so carefully in the book. And this, it is just too easy to get, especially as an idea, you know, as a creator, as a problem solver, that you come to this problem and you think, I've got it. And look, we've, we've, we've got this group of people who it's solving their problems. So of course we can scale it. Yeah, I, I love that you brought that up because I've worked in various firms. I've worked in various governmental bodies. And the typical model is somebody has an idea, then they're responsible for testing it. So they test it and then they take it to the CEO. Yeah. And then when it ships, they get the bonus. <laughs> That's <laughs> right. What? <laughs> That's right. Right. If you have an idea, great, you can test it. But then you also need what I call naysayers or, or pricklers or whatever you want to call them who need to pressure test it. Yeah. And they need to say, look, it worked in the Petri dish, but was it because it was a unique sample that you have? I set this Petri dish up to be the exact best situation. So I got the right people and then I got the right situation and then it worked. That's an efficacy test, a flat out efficacy test. But what happens in the academy is, we publish it, and then we forget to tell everyone it was an efficacy test. <laughs> and then when you raise it up and scale it, it doesn't work. Because when the policymakers said, everyone tells us it's big, and then when we scale it, it's not, they were right. Yeah. yeah. They were 100% right. That's, mm -hmm. that's the voltage drop. And nearly every time that happens. But where the policymakers were wrong is that it's not a silver bullet problem. The policymakers were thinking about it as if it has that one unique element, that good signature, it's like creativity or critical thinking. It's hard to define, but I know it when I see it, then it's going to scale. They're wrong. They're flat out wrong. This is an Anna Karenina problem. And what I mean by Anna Karenina is think about Tolstoy's very first line in his great book, Anna Karenina. Happy families are all alike. Each unhappy family is unhappy in its own way. Now, Tolstoy has what I call a dimensionality problem because you can be unhappy in an infinite number of ways. I have eight kids and a big family, so I, I know this. Now, with scaling, think about this. Scalable ideas are all alike, but each unscalable idea is unscalable in its own way. But I talk about the five reasons why it's not scalable. Right. And we've gone over a few of them already, right? It's doesn't have voltage, know your audience, and now we're kind of to, did you generate data in a situation wherein that situation is not replicable, and but you think it is, so you go ahead and try to scale it? Yeah. yeah. One of the things, John, that I love about both the book and just your work in general is that you bring a lot of these behavioral economics, behavioral science principles into real life business situations in a very purposeful manner. You worked at Uber, you've worked at Lyft, now you're chief behavioral officer at Walmart. And the idea of taking all of these insights and applying them in a manner that is actually making some difference within these organizations. And I just wanted from your perspective, are you seeing this as a as a trend that is happening? Is this something that can we scale behavioral science yeah. inside of organizations 
and, and how do we do yeah. that if that is indeed the case? Oh, gosh. Kurt, I love that. that that's great insight. I love that. Let's, let me turn back the clock a bit, though, just to have a little bit of fun with all of you. Uh, to the late 80s. So late 80s, I am an undergrad at UW Stevens Point. Woohoo! Woohoo! I'm a proud pointer. Okay. So I'm learning about all of these great economic theories as a, as a sophomore and junior in, in college. And on the side, I'm doing two things. I'm, I'm on the golf team, but I'm also, when we don't have golf on the weekends, I'm going to baseball card conventions. So my girlfriend and I are traveling all around the Midwest, and I want you to envision a big hotel ballroom, and you have a bunch of these nerds like me standing behind a six-foot-long table, and our baseball cards are on that table. Like, literally put your cards on the table, son. Um, <laughs> so you put your baseball cards on the table. Thousands of people walk through. And they're walking through to buy, sell, and trade. This is a market. So yeah. I start to think, wow, is what I'm learning in those courses, does that happen here? So I started to do field experiments in the late 80s, early 90s to talk about and test these economic theories. Okay. So I start to realize that neoclassical theory gets it wrong a lot. And it gets it wrong in very predictable ways. That's behavioral economics. So I started to then, as a grad student, around 92, I start to learn about, wow, economists are actually doing experiments in the lab. They're bringing sophomores into, college sophomores into the lab, and they're testing for loss aversion, endowment effects if you're Dick, you know, loss aversion if you're Danny, et cetera, et cetera. And I'm thinking to myself, I have my own lab. My own lab is the baseball card conventions. I want to change the world through using my field experimental method outside of the lab. And I want to use randomization and use behavioral economic tools to first learn about the world and learn about how economics can help us understand the world, how behavioral economics can help us understand the world. But then I also want to leverage those insights to make change and make the world a better place. So I start in baseball card shows. Why? One, because I knew that market. Yeah. You can say, well, why'd you know the market? Well, when I was a kid, I would shovel snow in the winter and I would cut grass in the summer and I would get five or seven dollars for doing it from the person. And I would run down to the local PDQ and buy baseball cards. So I had this massive collection of baseball cards that I could use to fund my research. Because back then, when I said I'm going to do field experiments, no one was doing them, and everyone said, I'm off my rocker. They, they, they said, why would you do that? Just do things in the lab. Don't go to the field. So then throughout the 90s, it kind of grew. I, late 90s, I start working with a lot of charitable organizations. I start a research agenda on the economics of charity, and that's still going on today. Early 2000s, I start to work on the gender pay gap. I start to work on corporate social responsibility, the economics of discrimination. We've talked a little bit about early childhood, and then firms start to call me. And now when firms start to call, like Uber and Lyft and Walmart, I think, 
Okay. Johnny, you're not in the baseball card show business anymore. (laughs) (laughs) You're not in Kansas anymore. Um, But the tools and the thinking are the same. It's just that the stakes are bigger and you can affect bigger change in a manner that we've never been able to do it. Organizations, I work with a lot of governments, same thing. Organizations are opening up and we have to understand that a lot of times people say data is the most important resource in the world. They, you know, smart people say data has displaced oil is a most important resource in the world. They're half right. The true value is the data refiner mm. because every firm has mounds and mounds of data and every firm has the capability to generate mounds and mounds of data through A-B tests or through field experiments. But the unique element is the data refiner and the person who can, let's say, take those mounds and mounds of data with all of their curiosities and, and all of their question marks and turn it into something that's actionable. And I think that's what a behavioral economist can do. Firms are beginning to understand the value of people like me. Now, what happens then? They hire us. I take, so as an academic, I get to work there a day a week. That's the deal. So I can be a University (laughs) of Chicago economist. And then the side gig to my side gig, side gig, I, I have to work. I can work a day a week. So I'm not scalable. There's no possible way I'm scalable, but I can create a team, a pyramid team, where if I can get like-minded people working right under me and then get a large enough team at the org, I can from the top say, here's what we're going to do. Here's how I want you to go about business. Let's get things done. That can work. Okay. What, What can't work is I can't be in every meeting. I can't write every code. I can't. I can't do make every little decision, but what can work is your team. And being a data refiner, I have to understand and help to teach people to be capable data refiners. They're never going to be brilliant data refiners that can get a, a distinguished chair position at Harvard. It, it's very hard to teach that. That's the beauty of, of uniqueness. But they're capable enough to make a lot better decisions where the org will go in a lot better place because of those people. And and I think that trend is not changing. And scientifically, to me, this is a key unlock because you have organizations that contain a wealth of data and information and potential. And when I say potential, the potential that at Lyft, I can do a two-day experiment and have 5 million observations. And I can learn very quickly using a multi-site trial about things like heterogeneity or things like the properties of the situation or things like spillovers. And I can show here's how you should be going about this. But these things are still important if you're tiny. If you're a trucker that has one truck like my brother, these elements are still important. They're just important at a different scale. Yeah. So as the chief economist at Walmart... How are you changing the world? What do you want to do to to change the world with your your tribe of data refiners? Absolutely. So let me start with a caveat, Tim. I don't start till May 2nd. 
Okay, so I have oh, three weeks oh. left to start. Whatever, okay? whatever. whatever. <laughs> this guy's given an excuse already. Already. So, so, I can't tell you how we did it at Lyft, but let me tell you where I think we're going to go with Walmart. I like, I like the question. Look, Walmart has probably the biggest footprint in the world. If you think about America, 90% of Americans live within 10 miles of a Walmart. If you, if you view Walmart as a country, their GDP is as big as Belgium's GDP. If you talk about em, employment, they employ 2.3 million people. Now, if you talk about what they have their hands in, it now becomes fun because you have really interesting HR issues. Like, why, do people, why have people gotten promoted? What happens when a person gets promoted to their productivity? What happened to the person who should have gotten promoted but didn't because of a mistake or what have you? What happens to their productivity? And what happens if they don't have a job they can go to in the local community? If they're in a, in a small labor market and they're stuck and, and it's difficult for them to move, what happens to that person's profile? What about health? Now, now let's go to the, the, the customer side. And think about the number of people that Walmart touches, either through the grocery side or the merchandise side, and think about pricing and how you can give more value to customers by understanding the basket correlations, for example. Now let's go to last mile delivery, because Walmart's getting their lunch handed to them by companies like GoPuff and Amazon who are delivering the last mile. Walmart can do that. And I, I know a little bit about that from Lyft and Uber. So, so I think I can help a little bit about, you know, that side. What about membership programs? Because, because let's remember, when we attract a customer, that's great. But if you don't retain them, it doesn't matter. And I talk about this in Chapter 2 with how to think about the economics of a membership program. Okay, now, now let's talk about expansion outside of America. Now, we never stop, right? We never stop because the, the footprint of Walmart and my particular sandbox is so big that it's not a question of, are there neat areas that I can add behavioral economics? The better question is, throw your hands up and say, where do you start? Yeah. And, and I'm the first, economist, first chief economist of Walmart. So that means that there are going to be a lot of opportunities because economists tend to think differently. When I think about economics, I think economics is life. And life is economics. Every choice or environment or situation that we find ourselves, it has economic implications. And the economic model can help us understand how people are behaving in those situations. So I, I'd love to come back in a year or so and tell you what my team, which I want to call it Waltonomics, by the way. So you tell me if that's a bad name. But I, 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 I'm leading toward Waltonomics, but I don't know. Better I don't than know. Does Steve Levitt have anything to say about maybe like ripping off of his economics Look, thing? Uh, yeah. I, I hear you. But remember, Steve's sister was the innovator of that name. Steve had a hard time finding a name. And Steve's sister innovated Freakonomics. And at the beginning, they said, oh, this is a piece of junk. Oh, no, <laughs> nobody's going to take it seriously. It ends up blowing up, right? So, But remember, Kurt, my team at Uber was called Ubernomics. <laughs> and Steve was very proud of that. Okay, well, there you go. <laughs> yeah. But at, at Lyft, we became a little bit less um, innovative. It was just called the Department of Economics at Lyft. <laughs> and, and I was the dean of the department. 
That sounds so dry, honestly. Yeah. yeah, yeah. Hey, John, I'm glad you brought up the fact that you worked in charity because we, we actually had um, put out to some people that are followers of us and, and our listeners about some questions to ask you. And so we had one from Nick Mishkin who asked, how can insights from charity given be applied to other sectors? For example, can we use lotteries yeah. and matching techniques in business or sales? Yeah. So I, I want to get that question because it was a, a you know. A, a, oh, absolutely. Absolutely. So, so let's talk about charity. So you're exactly right. In the late 90s, it's a li- the story for me is a little bit like what happened with scaling. I was um, sitting in my office at the University of Central Florida, and the dean of the business school knocked on my door. And he said, John, we want you to start a center, the Center for Environmental Policy Analysis. I said, okay, I'm a, I'm a second year assistant professor. I'm not sure if I should be doing that. And he said, I want you to do it. Plus, I want you to raise money for it. And again, I said, well, I'm an assistant professor, second year. I'm not sure if I should start a center and raise money. But I said, let, let me think about it. I'd never raised money before. So I thought about it for a few days and I called him back. And I said, I will do this. If you allow me to run a field experiment on raising money and I want you to give me $5,000 in seed money so I can multiply that. That's literally how I got involved. A lot of times people say, well, you're doing all this charity work. You must be such an altruist. Maybe I'm an altruist. I don't know. But the reason why I started is because I saw an opportunity to add science to the economics of philanthropy. There there was a bunch of older work by Marty Feldstein, Charles Klotfelter. They used IRS data, and there were nice theoretical papers written by Jim Andrioni and other great people, but it wasn't a scientific approach in the field in running field experiments with charities. So I said, I'm going to give this a go. So I ran that first exercise with David Lucking Riley. And it was on seed money. It was on how to use seed money to leverage into more money. And it was published in the Journal of Political Economy in 2002. So the question is, John, give us some insights that have been generalizable. Let's think about matching. Okay. So one result that Dean Carlin and I found in an experiment that we ran around, it was published in the 2007 AER. And we ran it around 2005 where we used matching funds. Okay, so what is what is a match? We, we contact some people and we tell them, for every dollar you give, we have an anonymous donor who will match it one-to-one. Okay, that's a one-to-one match. We see that yep. all the time. Now, there are also two-to-one matches. So what that means is for every dollar you give, an anonymous donor will match two-to-one. Okay. So back then, the conventional wisdom was the higher the match, the more money you will raise because the value of every dollar you give is multiplied by a higher number. In economics, it's called the law of demand. Yep. If you charge a higher price, quantity demanded goes down. It's, it's our best law, really, that we have in economics. We're not like <laughs> the hard scientists. We don't have these cool quantitative laws, right? We have these qualitative (laughs) laws. Okay. So we test that. What we find is that the match itself matters a lot. So whether you have match money 
matters. In fact, if you have match dollars available, you raise about 20% more money than if you don't have match dollars available. Okay, so that's result one. Result two is, even though the match matters, the match rate does not matter. Okay, so what I'm saying is one to one, two to one, three to one, all brings in the same amount of money from outside. So if you use a three to one rate, you're just losing money. You're giving away more of that money faster. Exactly, and, yeah. exactly. You could have broadened uh, the ask. Okay, so so that's that's a result now in charitable giving. You can say, how does that expand outwards to other other parts of life? Let's think about retirement. And the way that a lot of firms set up retirement is they say, every dollar you give up to a certain amount, we will match 100%, say up to 7% of, of your salary. We'll match 100%. Okay. If you do experiments in this space, what you find is you will be much better off saying we will match 50% of of your of your giving up to 14% of your salary. So the budget's the same, 100% of 7 or 50% of 14, but people will give a lot more to their retirement when it goes up to 14 because they don't want to lose those match dollars. That's the same kind of idea that having match dollars available is the important element and the rate is less important. So businesses a lot of times are leaving money on the table if if, if, if they want their workers to give more to their retirement, they should use smaller ratios and get it to go more. But that's an if. I don't want to get in a fight here about what the <laughs> optimal savings rate is. So yeah. I'm, I'm just telling you a result that can generalize. It's it's interesting that that it's that one to three ratio is kind of that bottom. And it just it struck my head is, you know, in the ultimatum game. When you're doing an ultimatum, it's typically around that 30% that people need to offer to the other person to make sure that that is given. And it seems equivalent in some manner, but I don't know if there's any relationship there. I, I hear you, but I'm going to challenge you, Kurt, on, on what you just said. Okay. That is true for a certain level of stakes. So if you look at my AER paper, I think it was published around 2011 with Uri Ganesi. I think Seda Ertach was, was, was also a co-author on that paper uh, and several others. What we find is when we use really large stakes, yeah. people reject much less often. And, let, let, and now let's back up and say economic theory doesn't have predictions on whether somebody should reject or not. When we say we're testing, we're testing like one element of subgame perfect equilibrium that people are perfectly selfish and, and, um, and they're maximizing. But if you back off that and say, economic theory doesn't tell you whether you like asparagus or you want spite or you want revenge, economic theory doesn't have predictions on what you should like or not. The prediction from economic theory is if it's costlier to reject, you do less of it. So that's what the AER paper, but Stefan Anderson is an author on there. And like I said, Uri Seda, uh, Sa Sandra Maximiano and I. So what we basically did is we changed the price of rejection. 
And when you change the price of rejection and make it more costly to reject, that's that's what you do with higher stakes. So we did things like two or three months of income mm. in these ultimatum games. And we're able to do it because we went to developing countries where our experimental budget can go a lot further. And what you find is the economic prediction of and I call it a, a demand for fairness. So you have a demand curve for fairness or revenge or spite. The demand curve is downward sloping. That's the prediction from economic theory. It's not that you don't have spite or you don't have revenge and you put all of your weight on money. That's not an economic theoretical prediction. The theoretical prediction is as something gets more expensive to purchase, you purchase less of it. And that's what exactly happens in our data and when the cost gets too expensive, people don't demand fairness anymore. <laughs> so what you said was 30%. That's true for like a $10 pot. Yeah. But when the pot is $1,000 or $100,000, guess what? They're taking the, the 1% and they're happy. They'll take the, they'll take the $100. They'll take the $1,000. Yes. That, that, that's what economic theory says they do. And that's what the AER paper in 2011 uh, finds as well. It's something like stakes matter. It's titled something like stakes matter and ultimatum games, right? We'll make sure that we link to that in the show notes for everybody. So we'll, we'll find that. We'll get that. Thank you. Because it's one of those pieces. Again, I think I've, I remember that, but it's one of those, you know, nuances that you just kind of let go and you kind of think of all the other ultimatum games that are there. So good Thanks. clarification. Really appreciate that. No, no, so. no problem. Thanks. At, at some point in the future, we're going to have to have a conversation about another fellow economist, George Lowenstein, and the work that he did with Dan Ariely on the large stakes and big mistakes. Oh, using yeah using very large incentives uh, in, in developing countries and how people respond to that. That's No, that I love that. Look, and I'm a huge George Lowenstein fan. I think whenever we talk about effects of stakes on outcomes, you know, I see this in innovation. I see it with cognitive mistakes, et cetera. We should always understand that in markets, you not only have that element, but you have before that selection. And you have selection of people into activities. And if you want the whole effect of incentives, it's a good place to start. Where yeah. Dan, and I think Uri's a co-author on that paper too. It's a good place to start to say, well, when I go to a pool of people and keep the pool static and raise and lower the stakes, what happens? It's also a good place to start by saying, if I raise stakes, do I have a different selection of people? who opt into those activities. And then after they opt into them and we allow us to look at a long run equilibrium, how do people sort in and out of that setting? And in the end, what does the assortment of people look like in the long run equilibrium? I think all of these are important questions to look at. Well, it's it's it, because that's the Petri dish, right? So if we just look at the Petri dish, but the Petri dish in the field is actually skewed because of self-selection into whatever it is, you're not going to have apples to apples comparison there. And so that, yeah. Okay. We have to turn over to music for just a, a few minutes here, Todd. <laughs> My gosh, this is so much fun. It is really so much fun. But imagine you were stuck on a desert island for a year and you get to choose two musical artists, their entire catalog that you get to take with you, but that's the only music that you can listen to. Who might be those two musical artists? It could be an individual, it could Gosh, be a band. Yeah. yeah. No, I hear you. That's a great question. 
So I start by thinking, who is that person or group who has enough variety? Right. Sometimes uh, when you listen to bands like Loverboy, for example, it's the same song over and over again. There's like different lyrics. Different lyrics, a slightly different beat. And yeah. Here comes our novelty-seeking <laughs> brains, right? Exactly. So I, I want now I want two that are distinguished in type and style, but I also want within them, I want some variation. Yeah. And some variation of what I like. So now thinking about my playlist, what's some pretty good variation, you know? And thinking, you're, are you reflecting on your recent trip to Nashville too? Is Absolutely. It, is, That's going to be yeah. part of it. But do I also get to hang out with them and talk about their lives besides <laughs> listening to music? Or, or is it just on my on my handheld listening to music? Or can I hang out with the guys? Let's, let's make the rule. What do you think, Kurt? Well, let's actually split this. If, if you had to, if you had to choose just from their catalog, you don't get to talk to them. Don't get to talk to pick. them. And then, if you had the opportunity yeah. to say, "Hey," in in addition to just yeah. having, you get to bring them along with you to yeah, have the conversation for absolutely. a year. Absolutely. So, I'm going to start with the latter one and say, "Bring them along." I I would love to hang out with the Beatles during that time because I think they just have great stories to tell. Oh my God! Yeah. And like a Beatles slash Freddie Mercury mixture. Would be great because I think Queen has a type of music that's it's look, this guy probably had the best voice ever, Freddie Mercury, right? It's it'd be hard to argue that. And the the level of discourse that I think these fellas can engage in be super interesting. Okay. Now on the music side, so I'm gonna choose a country music person, but I'm gonna go with somebody like the fans will all say you should choose Johnny Cash. And in many ways I should, because the guy led a really interesting life and he has a ton of great songs. So, so Johnny Cash is in line, but I'm actually going to choose Marty Robbins oh. and, and Marty Robbins, because he has a great storytelling nature. And think about El Paso out in the West Texas town of El Paso. Yeah. I fell in love with a Mexican girl. Great I mean, this narrative. is like good old yeah. fashioned stuff and a great voice. So, so I'm going to go Marty Robbins first, Johnny Cash second, and, and that genre. Now, more recent, gosh, this is a tough one because there's so many different ones to choose from. I'm going to probably say the Red Hot Chili Peppers. Oh, my gosh. Uh, I'm going to probably say the Peppers um, because they're, they're super creative, come right around the grunge time, right after grunge, Kurt Cobain, kind of writing that. But they got the funk and they got the, the – I know. The I would have said you know. ACDC. But less variety. Be, but, yeah. but, but ACDC is more of that. That's the same song. It, it you know, is, but those guys would be also fun to hang out with, too, oh because they have a lot of great stories. So I, I kind of went to the second one again. Okay. But, uh, but that's, that sort of gives you a, a feeling about what, I, what I'm listening to. Now, look, I mean, that, that these are tough questions because when you also – if you look at what Gordon Lightfoot did – and yeah. like what he and Chris Christopherson, Waylon Jennings, like Wh having Waylon and Willie on the on the island would just be fun, just for having oh. those two dudes on the island, <laughs> right? Right? Because you could have stories with Waylon and Willie. They would sing, right? Looking back, Texas. They they would say, "Don't let your kids grow up to nope. be cowboy, yeah, right? yeah. Mama, don't." So I mean. That look, look, this is a tough question, right? It's like choosing who's your favorite kid. I have eight kids. Who's your favorite kid? Well, it's that one. So that, that kind of gives you, I think, uh, a general sentiment. But look, in the end of the day, the overall, my music would, would probably come back to Fleetwood Mac. And, and that would probably be my number one artist. I'm a huge Stevie Nicks fan. Um, 
I've gone to several of their concerts and and that that kind of feeling of their music and their their vocals and, and what they were able to do to advance this, this is pretty cool stuff so it got that kind of arches over everything is Fleetwood Mac yeah I love the diversity talk about you know variety seeking you listen to a lot of different kinds of music and I yeah. think that's that that's fantastic John you know what I also did, Tim? So thank you for that. You know what I also did was for my wife's 50th birthday, I don't know if you remember that song, I Think We're Going to Be Friends. Do you remember that song? Not not off the top of my head, but we okay, can find so it. We'll I track it down. I redid that song with lyrics about she and I being friends and research partners. So it's uh it's and i had a person come in and perform it live on her 50th birthday oh my gosh that is fantastic so the songwriter and i worked on changing all of the lyrics but keeping the same tune yeah it's it's titled something like i think we're going to be friends have you ever heard of that song before we'll 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 find it it. we'll list it in the in in the show notes again but yeah let me see if i have it here because you're, you're gonna like the beat i think let me see oh the white stripes yeah. 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 Oh my gosh. Yeah. Okay. Jack, Jack wrote that. Oh, one. that song. Yes. Here it is. Yes. So, so I redid this. This is. So that that's like a one-hit wonder, basically, right? Or or not? White stripes. I mean, I like no, the white stripes. No, they, they, Jack Jack White has gone and done a uh, ton of work. No, so after yeah, that, yeah, he blew oh, up. Yeah. 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 But uh, but yeah. So I redid that for Dana. And we played that at her 50th birthday party. So, uh, Baby. Oh. <laughs> you're going on. There's more, more, more white stripes. There you go. And, well, it's, I wish we had more time. And we definitely are going to have to have you come back because I wanted to talk to you about, A, working with Dana, right? Working with yeah. your wife on, on research yes. and oh doing God. stuff. And what's that oh like? And, and, you know, I mean, I worked with my wife for a little bit and, and she quickly left and said, ah, we're, we save our marriage. We gotta, we gotta oh, stop. So wow. no, it's know. tough. Look, look, it's tough. Um, you're right. <laughs> we're doing a ton of early childhood stuff. We're developing technology. Dana's taking the lead on developing this wearable technology that tracks the interactions between parent and caregiver, uh, oh. pardon me, parent slash caregiver and child. And then on the top of that, we're building a machine learning model to figure out what's the best playbook to make sure your child's ready for kindergarten. And we think we're going to really have breakthroughs on giving lessons to parents. And scientifically, it's it's really kind of an interesting project. She and I co-direct the 30 Million Words Center here at the University of Chicago. So um, she also has a book coming out titled Parent Nation. We'll have to get both of you on. We'll we'll have to do. Oh gosh, I would love that. We'll have to do a dual like have this and then we can have uh, you know some like the the, the marriage oh, counseling some give and, and bantering. <laughs> that would be love fun. that. Love that. She, she she is filled with blank and vinegar. If not, <laughs> you can fill that in. She's so she's uh she's a dynamo. A brilliant dynamo. So yeah, it's a, but I get what you're saying, Kurt. There's a fine line between. Well, when we come home, when do we turn it off? And, and I have a problem with that. I never turn it off. Yeah. So I'm always thinking about an idea or economics, et cetera. And, and when you're working together, sometimes I can be yeah. too much, I think. We just talked for, uh, with Sam Tatum, who just wrote um, Evolutionary Ideas. He works at Ogilvy and different things. And one of the things that he talked about is this idea that, you know, once you start 
seeing these things and understanding these concepts, it, it you can't turn it off. It just, it's like you see it, you go on vacation and you're going, oh, there's the anchoring effect in, or, you know, you know, different aspects of, of all these pieces. And so it, it's true. It's, it's hard to turn that off and say, all right, now we're going to just be a family and, and we're going to do our family things when you're thinking about work all the time and all those principles. So, John List, thank you so very much for being a guest on Behavior Groups today. We have so enjoyed this conversation. You've been fantastic. Uh, thank you so much for having me, and I look forward to coming back soon. Welcome to our grooving session where Tim and I groove on what we learned from our conversation with John, have a free-flowing discussion, and talk about whatever else comes into our high-voltage brains. Of course. We are we are ultimately scalable, aren't we? Oh, you and me both. Uh, and, you know, uh, high-voltage. <laughs> that seems like I just I get this vision of ACDC every time I say that. High-voltage. <laughs> of course you would. <laughs> Let's just say I don't. <laughs> oh, come on. They're one of the best-selling bands in rock and roll history, and you just dismiss them because they only know three chords. There you go. We're going to have to contest best-selling, we'll, but we'll, we'll we'll save that for another for another day. Record let's sales, the, I would yes, say they are the up there with some of the biggest bands out there. Wouldn't you? Okay. All right. Well, They're scalable. They've scaled. They're oh, they their, did. They yes, took they their did. little yes. idea from nowhere, Australia. I, I don't know. They might be from Sydney. So maybe it's big somewhere, Australia. Yeah. And they took it to a world stage. They scaled yes, they their did. music. That is absolutely true. And they did it well for a long time, too. Mm -hmm. It wasn't, they were not one hit wonders. They absolutely. Yeah, you know, uh, it's amazing it. what a little schoolboy outfit will do for you if you, you play your your guitar right. There you go. Well, and, you know, fantastic guitar sounds. Yeah. You know, honestly, Angus Young has got an unbelievably raw sound that's so, you know, emotional that you kind of just have to stand up and go, wow, that's. That's high variable. voltage. <laughs> <laughs> okay, so how do you define high voltage? What what is voltage? What what is scaling an idea? You know, I mean, that's what John's talking about. Right? Yeah, and so I, I, I'll take a step back, right? Because I, the, one of the best images that John brings to this conversation is this idea of taking things from a petri dish, right? This idea that oh, we we work these ideas; they're small. And, and oftentimes, particularly in the, you know, with many of the researchers that we talk to, they do these experiments in a lab. And so the Petri dish is the perfect kind of metaphor for that, right? Where yes. we're putting yeah. the system in here and we're making all of the conditions for growth optimal. In and, this controlled environment, this very carefully constructed context to make sure that things work well. Yes. And I think that is this idea that, all right, we, we can demonstrate that in this environment, this controlled environment, that this works great. But when you then take it to the broader population, when you take it outside of the lab, then it may not have the same thing. So voltage is this idea of adding in this energy that makes these ideas just pop, this idea of moving beyond. And right. we're talking about a Petri dish and kind of lab and research, but this also happens in companies. This happens in organizations mm -hmm. when you're doing a pilot project. What do you put on the pilot? You put your brightest and best on the pilot project. You, you know, have all of the 
situation set up to have the optimal output, right? Because that's what you want. If I'm the leading this right. pilot, I want to prove that my idea works. So I'm going to give it the best possible situation and everything to make that possible. Yeah. And then when you take it out, you know, to the larger, broader piece, you might not have all of those environmental and contextual facts that then led to the success in the smaller scale. Now at a bigger scale, it may or may not. And otherwise, you can have both. You can have things, you know, yeah. that do translate. John pointed out this wonderful aspect that we want our ideas to succeed, not just for ego purposes, but because we've got other people riding on the coattails of this. We've got the sponsors, the the donors, as sometimes as he talked about it, have given money and they want to see it work. We've got people employed. We've got, you know, people running, running the studies. You know, they, there's an Ikea effect out there. You know, what, what they're building, they want to see come to fruition. There's a lot of good reasons for us to want that, that Petri dish to work. Mm-hmm. But but John cautions us to say, you know, like Anna Karenina and Tolstoy, that unless we get all these factors right, it's just going to be a dysfunctional, unhappy family. Which which is the piece that I thought was fantastic about what John was talking about. And again, why he is so good at what he does is, and, and I'm going to quote him here. He said, you know, it, it's, it's the idea of when you're looking back and you're going, oh, this didn't work. Why did it look so good in the Petri dish? This is the quote. Why did it look so great in the Petri dish, but then not so great when it scaled? And that yeah, is yeah. the piece that, you know, he explores in the book. He looks at this right. and he says, here are the factors that, hey, when we look at the Petri dish, it looks great. But man, mm-hmm. when we take it outside of that Petri dish and put it in the real world, here are some things that kind of show up over and over and over again that we look at this. And so, yeah. So, so he's saying don't abandon it, Yeah, but he's saying, take accounting of what's different and, and uh, try to identify those things that aren't working in the real world. Right. This idea, I mean, uh, the, he, he starts and he starts the book with this idea about false positives, right? This idea yeah. that, Hey, you can get a positive impact, but that doesn't mean that that's the real impact. There's a certain element of luck that happens in everything that we do. And so you got to beware of that. You have to beware of those false positives, you know, which is also taking a look and saying, all right, are the, what is the environment in that Petri dish in that experiment in that trial project that we're doing? And are those the same environmental constraints and leverages that you're going to have? at scale in the larger yeah. world. And so you have to be able to explore that. You know, maybe we should just recap some of the key things that John talked about that help make your idea scalable. Because if there's entrepreneurs, there's people within organizations listening, they should be thinking about, okay, so what do I need to do? What are the things that I need to pay attention to that are most influential on making my idea scalable? And I just, I just want to get that started by knowing your audience. Mm. Like John is, it hits it right up front. It's like, don't overly generalize your populations. You know, if you think that you're wanting to introduce a new product to, to a new audience that you have not sold to before, then you have to actually bring that product to them, not to your existing customers who love you and know you and, and think that you're, you know, that you guys have the, the very best dog food ever. You're going to have to take the dog food to 
or your new product to audiences that don't know you that are unfamiliar and test it with them. Yeah. And I think there's a big piece of that too. It's this idea, you know, again, when we take ideas from the research lab and we, you know, the research lab is my university, you know, freshman 101 psych course. And then we think that those elements, you know, transfer across the board. It's the weird problem that we have, right? And on the science side of things, in the business side of things, though, are we getting the right sample? Are we piloting this in the right situation? Are we using this in Gary, Indiana for the pilot? And does Gary, Indiana translate across to the rest of the United States or the rest of the world? And that is always a big, big question. And I love that, you know, who is who is the audience that we're doing this? And are we building this? This is the other piece that I think that was interesting. He talks about, does the model reflect actual human behavior? right? How actual humans behave. So this idea of focus groups and different pieces. I, I heard a story, like they were doing a focus group with Sony about their Walkmans and they said, they're going to introduce a new color. And they said, oh, which color, this yellow or this black, right? And then it was this idea that, oh, everybody said, yellow is great. Yellow is great. Well, then at the end of the focus group, they gave an option to say, here, take, you know, you can get a black Walkman or a yellow Walkman. And and what happened? Everybody took the black Walkman. The black one, yeah. <laughs> Even though they said, oh, the yellow is great, but they took the black one. So does it reflect uh, yes. actual human behavior in what we're doing? Yeah. Right. Preferences and the decision to take action are two different psychological processes. Who said that? Dr. Scott Jeffrey. I love that quote. Who, just, who was know. our guest on our very second episode, yeah. I believe. Episode two. Yeah. yeah. There yes. you go. Uh, that, that's, that's a great tie-in, Kurt, because those two things really go together. I also loved how, how he talks about the difference between ingredients and chefs. Mm. I mean, he, he actually spends a whole chapter on this, right? But this idea of you have to figure out what it is that is replicable and that, that you need is uh, if if you have a chef that comes up with a great recipe, can the chef actually teach other people, it, metaphorically, how to be a good chef? Can you teach them how to use the ingredients to make that food properly? Or does it turn out that that chef is non-replicable? Does it turn out that that chef basically can't be scaled? You have yeah. to you have to be able to identify what your business model is and how it works and your your idea, yeah. um, and be able to sort between the two so that if it is just a good ingredient, then get the damn ingredients right, get the process down, and do that. But be aware if you're trying to replicate this one person, this one charismatic chef, so to speak, that that's not going to be that's not going to be scalable. John's not scalable. You are not scalable. <gasps> I'm not scalable. But, but your ideas are scalable. But well, and, but the, and this is this is the other piece of that. So then it comes into so, for instance, behavioral grooves. You know, all right, you and I hopefully are not scalable, right? But the way that the information—I mean, this started off. We were going to do meetups, and we were going to do this with right, twenty, thirty right. people, and then we were going to try to do these meetups across the country and have different local chapters of, of behavioral grooves doing these meetups. And St. we realized Lewis, that Dallas, that was yeah, yeah. not, it was difficult. It was hard. It wasn't scalable, but yeah. a podcast 
that gets broadcast out that we get to, to 170 bring, countries. Yeah. yeah. You yeah. know, like 10 listeners, you know, in uh, across <laughs> those 170 countries. But hey, it's scalable across the world, right? <laughs> That's so right. Get, so, That's right. So it, it comes down into thinking too, like what are the pieces of how do you scale? Do you scale in with different modalities, different elements? And yeah. so we have to think about that, yeah. that, the idea of the meetup didn't work, but the idea of a podcast does. Yeah, and, and by the way, we do have more than 10 listeners. I mean, that's just my family. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> right. The other thing that John uh, focused on that I thought was important that kind of relates back to me and my 10-year-old self is funding. Mm-hmm. Right. That, that we have to have the financials right. We've got to figure out a way of looking at an idea and solving for the financial problem. Because if we can't get the financial problems solved, we don't have a product. I, I've been recently doing some consulting on customer lifetime value. Mm-hmm. And if you don't look at your existing customers to have a feel for how much are you spending to acquire them and to sustain them, and then what kind of gross margin dollars do they return to you if you're not actually looking at those kinds of things you don't know how much you can spend to acquire new customers or how much you need to spend to acquire new customers those are really important aspects of it well and sometimes i think many entrepreneurs many people that are just in business in general even researchers right some of this in in kind of thinking through some of the stuff are thinking that hey if we go to scale we're going to optimize we're going to get e- uh, efficiencies at scale and sometimes that works right if you're buying things in bulk you can usually get them cheaper but john brings up this great idea that sometimes actually getting things in bulk costs more the idea of right, right if you right. need to have very talented people all right well the more that you need you might be able to get a few of those talented people up front at a at a relatively reasonable price but pretty soon that that supply of very talented people goes down and you know economics 101 supply gets tighter what happens to cost well cost goes up right i mean yeah, i can yeah. now demand more for my services and therefore, your cost for those good teachers, as he talked about in that pre-K school that he was looking at, they got the best when they were doing it in South Side of Chicago. But man, you can't scale that, right? That That isn't an easy, scalable right. kind of component. So That's it. What else did you want to groove on, Kurt? Well, he talks about the spillover effect, too, which is another piece of this that I think is really important. That, and the spillover effect is this, it's the law of unintended consequences. It's right, this, these, as uh, he says, the unintended impact that one event or outcome can have on another event or outcome. Right. And, you know, you, we have to think about these, too, particularly from business perspective. And I see this all the time with incentives, is the idea that, all right, well, we're going to incent, we're going to put this incentive in place and it's going to drive X. But what we don't think about is what are the unintended elements that driving for X actually has? Does it mean that we're going to, you know, just go after the top clients that we have because we know that will get you to get your payout and we're foregoing, you know, new acquisitions, which is vital for the long-term success of the company? Is it meaning, as he talked about in the book, he talked about the Peltzman effect, which is, you know, this idea that uh, I think it's John Peltzman who was looking at the Sam Peltzman. Sam Sam Peltzman. Sam Peltzman, who looked at going, look, we've created all these policies about adding seatbelts and safety regulations to cars, but car auto deaths keep going up. 
And part of the reason for that was people felt safer wearing a seatbelt, so they drove more recklessly. Recklessly, they yeah. they didn't have the same caution. It's the same thing. You, you you know, I know there's been research on bike helmets and different pieces of that. So you know, there's unintended consequences that we have to take into account. Yeah. And again, it's hard sometimes to forecast those. Yeah. But we should, as we're thinking about taking something out of the Petri dish, so to say, try to anticipate what some of them might be. I'm really glad that you brought up incentives as an example, because we both have done a lot of work in in incentives. And the unintended consequences that I see most often are things like designing a program where, uh, as you, you brought up, like focusing on one product or one segment of clients rather than and sort of leaving other things to wilt. There's also that aspect of morale and what happens between the winners and the losers. Does that end up creating some kind of adversity or does it lead to cheating? Is it it going to create an environment that the reward seems to be worth the idea of uh, investing in you know, bad behavior uh, by by the people who are striving for it. And to your point on, on on kind of that overall motivation and different pieces within people, I mean, I've seen so many where, you know, the rewards, the big rewards go to the top 10, 5%, 20%. Right. And you leave an entire part of that population. Out of the, they're uh, completely they're, out of the picture. They're, they're not motivated at all. And no. I mean, we talked about that with... Um, Tom Steenberg. Tom Steenberg. Thank you. Yeah, See, this is yeah. this is why you are you are not scalable, Tim. You know, because <laughs> you, there you go. They call it Google. <laughs> I think actually, I think it's quite scalable. Oh, unfortunately, but in the moment, yeah. yeah. Anything else, Mister Houlihan, Mister Non-Scalable Man? All right. Nah, no. That no. That I think that that wraps it up for me. All right. Well, I think I think. It's a good pot to stop then. That's so we had a great conversation with John and we want to remind all of you would-be entrepreneurs that John is not writing about voltage to squash your idea, but no. he wants you to be able to scale your idea, to make an impact and to change the world for the better by giving concerts freely to everybody <laughs> out there and paying the damn musicians at the meantime. Oh, thank you for adding in the pay the damn musicians because they need to be rewarded. Uh, yes, that is what that's what we're trying to, to say. And that's what John's trying to say. And, you know, Kurt, you and I are learning from the experts at the same time that our listeners are learning. And we want to encourage our listeners to take those good ideas by hone them and work them and discuss them with experts and lean on the data refiners, right? You know, to help help them process it, because clearly John believes that our world is ripe with potential. So let's figure out how to do it, how to do it better. Maybe another way of saying this, Tim, is maybe we want to help you find your groove, groovers. <laughs> yes. Whether that's your personal groove, right? How you're doing in your life, or if it yeah. is the groove of your organization. And, you know, we want to help you. We want to work with companies that need outsiders to come in and help them understand their people perspectives, their incentive perspectives, understand what can scale, what can't scale, what are the factors that go in that behavioral science can have an impact on. And we'd love to help you, our listeners, with those issues. Absolutely. Uh, Don't hesitate to just drop us a line, you know, let us know what the issues you're facing, what your company is facing. We'd, We'd love to help all of you find your groove. Okay, Tim. We also want to thank all of our listeners who have left left us a quick rating or a short review. 
those ratings and those reviews feed the algorithms that get behavioral groups seen by people who are looking for behavioral sign podcasts to listen to. In other words, they help scale behavioral ah, groups yes, up they do. to the next level. So you listeners are integral in our ability to scale the impact that we are having and bringing these insights from world-renowned researchers and, and practitioners to larger and larger and larger audiences. So we want to thank you to all of those who have already left us a cool review. And if you haven't, it only takes a minute. So we would very much encourage you. Maybe you've been putting it off or thinking about it. And now, now is the time to go out and do that. It sure is. Now is definitely the time. And if you feel like going a step further, if you're just really feeling the God, the, the super groove right at this moment, then go out to our Patreon site <laughs> and, and you could actually just that it's by the way, there's just a patreon.com forward slash behavioral grooves, um, which is behavioral without the U just for those, the uh, American, the American you know, spelling of it. Yes. But you could set aside all that money that you would spend every Wednesday on a half grande, double daff, double decaf, single brown sugar pump dial, slight, uh, you know, blah, blah, blah. I don't even drink coffee. What, what am I saying? I don't even know what those things are. I was going to say, that's not bad. That's not bad for somebody who doesn't drink coffee. You kind of, know. you know, nailed all of those like really bad, you know, images that we, that we think of, of that Starbucks user and such. Even if it's just a damn black coffee people, you know, yes, still, yes. there you go. Um, Anyway, we hope that you have enjoyed this episode, that this episode inspires you, and we hope that it really inspires you to go out and find your group. 